You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's reading comes from Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The word of the Lord. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for Psalm 2. You have proved yourself to us over and over in your goodness, in your might, in your grace, in your kindness. Oh, for grace, God, we pray that you would do it again, that we would trust you even more as our good king. We pray that this might be so. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this fine afternoon. Uh, Next week, it'll even be a little bit more lighter in here. Uh, Daylight saving. Saturday night, Uh, but here we are, uh, and here we are right in the middle of an election season. Uh, Things are in full swing. Uh, Kyle just kind of briefly skimmed the surface of praying for our church and for this time in our country. We will be praying for ourselves and for our country even more in the next many months. But I have always loved following presidential elections. I remember staying up really late as a kid, uh, like begging my mom, not to make me go to bed, so that maybe one of the networks might declare uh, who the next president was going to be. And I don't know if you can empathize, though, maybe some of you political junkies out there, but it is getting more and more difficult to want to pay attention, is it not? Um, No matter the policy or the party, if anyone says anything, whether they are a politician or your great aunt, if anyone says anything with any political bent, the opposition will just chew them to shreds, quickly saying that that statement or the person that might hold that point of view is morally evil or an abject danger to the American experiment. Now, some things, some policies are morally evil and are dangerous to the American experiment. But if you watch or listen to any punditry, it seems like there are like multiple things happening in Washington or at your city council every hour that is like the last straw that could doom us all and like send us back to like the invasion of the Huns or something. 
And obviously, as you know, it's not just the pundits. It is Christians. It is pastors on social media. It is our family and friends. It is us, equally on both sides of the political spectrum. And it is exhausting. And our nation is raging. Well, we're in the Psalms. Last week, in Psalm 1, we considered how every human being is being formed, is being shaped, is being fed by something. There is no such thing as an autonomous human being. We are all shaped by what we are connected to. We can either be connected to and shaped by the word or by the world or by God's word. We can be shaped and connected to the wisdom of God or the so-called wisdom of those who scoff at God. This week, in Psalm 2, we're going to keep considering some of these themes. Only in Psalm 2, the scoffing world is going to kick it up a notch in their scoffing, in their hatred of God. And so God responds in kind by kicking it up a notch as well. Many of the Psalms, if you're familiar with the Psalms or if you just even scan the pages in front of you in the first several Psalms, many of the Psalms have a little subscript under the Psalm number. Many will say just like of David and these are original. This is not somebody that people like 21st century Americans are like trying to guess. These were in, in the old scrolls or maybe not even just of David, but like next week in Psalm 3 where you can see under Psalm 3, Whereas the English translators have uh, added this, save me, oh, oh my God, this title, this a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, that's original, that was there. There is an attribution of who wrote it and when and why David was writing that Psalm. We'll have much to think about next week. But Psalm 2, like Psalm 1, like last week, it has no subscript, it has no author attribution. And yet, tradition has it that this psalm was of David, written by David. And not just tradition, but in Acts 4, Luke, the the writer of Acts, just before uh, quoting from Psalm 2 in Acts 4, he says that here, uh, all of this was happening, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes straight from Psalm 2. So in an inspired New Testament book, We're told that this is David who is writing this. So here we have David, the king of Israel, scanning the world, thinking about the world, and then offering some poetic observations about the world. So on the one hand, what we are experiencing and observing in our current political culture is new. Like our grandparents, our great-grandparents, might not recognize this raging landscape if they could... uh, open Facebook for like five minutes and get a grasp on what it is they're seeing and then see just families and communities torn apart by politics, by kingdoms. And yet, there's also nothing new under the sun. The world has always raged. And so David, many, many thousands of years ago, in the kingdom that he was observing, and the worlds and kingdoms that he was observing, he was not dismayed. And so Psalm 2 comes to us in a very heated and volatile climate today as a comfort, as hope, but also as warning as well. So tonight we're going to walk through this psalm in three parts. That the world rages, the king reigns, and the people choose. So first of all, the world is raging. Assuming this is David, he asks in verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples 
plot in vain. He looks outside and he sees a world on fire, in tumult. There are wars, wars and rebellions. There is anger and violence. There is gossip and slander. There is sabotage and revolution all around him. It's like David is like sitting up in a high tower and just looking out at the world, looking at his city and then beyond, and then just wondering, what is going on? Why? What is happening? We can do the same. What is happening? The people, they are raging and plotting. And this word plotting is the exact same word that we thought through last week in Psalm 1 for how the blessed man meditates on the law of the Lord. It's the same word. We use different words in English, meditates and plotting, but it is the exact same thing. That man in Psalm 1, he sits with intentional reflectiveness. He is in quiet and careful thought, and he is considering the goodness and the graciousness of God, the the meaning of God's word, the implications, the the practical applications for his life. In Psalm 2, David looks out, and he sees the world doing the exact same thing meditating. But it isn't careful and intentional thought toward the flourishing life and submission to God the King, but rather it is careful and intentional thought on how to overthrow God the King. He keeps observing. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He's looking out and observing that the the kingdoms and the people hate that God, through David, is reigning. And they are conspiring for how to burst their bonds, how to burst their captivity to David, to God. The life that they consider to be slavery. Now, a cynic might read this and say, all right, this this David king guy, he's just self-serving. He is like somehow politically risen to the top and he wants to protect Uh, what little he has gathered for himself by squashing the opposition like any good autocratic tyrant might do. But he calls himself God's anointed. What's this about? To anoint someone is to set them apart, to consecrate them, to make make their lives and their vocation about sacred work unto the Lord, consecrate, sacred, to make them sacred, for special and set-apart service. And so in Leviticus 8, we see Aaron anointed as the high priest, and he is anointed by oil being poured over his head and onto his beard. Later in 1 Kings, Elijah, the prophet, will anoint Elisha to carry, carry on his prophetic ministry for speaking for God. But kings would also be anointed as well. They are set apart. They are Uh, shown to be chosen by God for this reign and rule. So even though Saul is still king because of his continual rejection of God, God sends the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 to find and then anoint this young boy, David, to pour oil on his head, to set him apart and signify David's coming kingdom. He is anointed, set apart by God for sacred service. And so a cynic, though, might read this and just say, well, that's, anno- that's convenient, isn't it? Like any king can then just say, like, touch not the Lord's anointed. He's, he has set me apart to do his will and his work. I mean, any tyrant can say this, right? Many religious and political leaders have said just that. 
touch not the Lord's anointed. But remember that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 act as a fountainhead for the rest of the Psalms. They are like the front door into the Psalms. You walk through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and then just begin, you, you sit down in the living room of the kingdom of God. Psalm 1 looks for the good rule of God's law. This is what we considered last week. Now, Psalm 2 looks for the good ruler who will enact God's law, who will bring about the wise and blessed life. The Psalm 2 king of God, the anointed one of God, is the wise and blessed man who will actually extend God's kingdom of the flourishing life. Now, if you're sticking with us in the, the read scripture plan, uh, if you're not, you can grab one of these reading plans and just join in for tomorrow, March 2nd. Uh, but on Friday, if you're reading with us, you read in Deuteronomy 17 what Israel's future kings were to be like. Now, in Deuteronomy 17, there is no king in Israel, but God gives some commands to if and when there is a king, this is how the king ought to act. And actually, the king is given no tasks. There are no military or legislative or judicial jobs given to a future king of Israel. Here's the only job for the king of Israel. He's got to be a Bible nerd. This is all he has to do. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 17. For a future king of Israel. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the, the, the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the left hand or to the right, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That's the only job of the king is to rewrite the entire law and just know it. In other words, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. The king of God is meant to be the Psalm 1 man who knows the law, who knows God's, the, the, the way of God's kingdom. And so it's against that kind of Psalm 1 king that the Psalm 2 nations are raging. Now, David is certainly not without his faults. He is not a perfectly um, executing the law of the Lord in his kingdom and in his own life. There are many, many faults. But he is probably the best that humanity could have ever hoped for. He is a man after God's own heart. He is reigning and ruling as God's image, and the world hates it. As Americans, we don't have a political king to rage against. We do live in a world where Paul's commands from Romans 13 are still binding on our lives to honor and submit to our political authorities. But that said, the world is raging, and we are just as tempted to today, today to join in. I mentioned the This Cultural Moment podcast last week, but elsewhere in that podcast, Mark Sayers points out that these days, if you took just 10 random 25-year-old interns from Fox News. And then you went and you grabbed 10 random 25-year-old interns at MSNBC. They would very likely disagree on like 99.9% .9 of their worldview. They would disagree on things politically and culturally. 
But Sayers points out that these things are just a mask. Under the veneer is essentially the exact same anthropology, the, their understanding of what humanity is and is for, so that they might very nearly have identical spending habits. They might have identical habits in leisure and in time spent. And now, even more so, their sexual lives and expectations might look nearly identical. It's all American individualism masked by political ideology. So underneath all Americans is the same ultimate meaning of life. Remember last week, this is the American meaning of life. Uh, to feel good, to be happy, to have sex, to buy stuff, and to go on vacation. That's it. And that is the same for the right or the left. And so the right wants to deconstruct and deregulate any government interference from the individual flourishing life. Get it out of here so that I can live my life however I'd like. While the left wants to deconstruct and deregulate any norms, any forms, any traditions that interfere from the individual flourishing life. The exact same thing. And while both are arguing for deconstruction more and more these days, neither end of the spectrum has a positive vision for what to replace it with. I would argue that the brilliant and ingenious founders of the American experiment actually had a positive vision. They had a robust anthropology of what humanity was for. And I know they, these were deeply, deeply flawed human beings themselves, many of them slave owners, very few of them is what we would recognize as Orthodox Christians. But if you'd like to think more deeply about what they were arguing for, about their positive uh, vision for society and for culture, and then even further, how a Christian should understand and interact uh, in the political sphere and with our neighbor, I meant to bring it up. It's down there. Uh, Nada, are you going to toss me that book? I'll just grab it. This is a great book. How the Nations Rage, aptly named, straight out of Psalm 2 by Jonathan Lehman, and I've got a copy of it on the uh, book cart out there. If it's gone and you'd like to read it, uh, somebody grabbed it first, you can come and grab my copy and you can definitely borrow that. But this is a, this is a wonderful book for you to read as a Christian living in a very uh, politically heated world, especially over the next many months. But... The nations are raging and conspiring for deconstruction, deconstruction, deconstruction. This is the world in which we live. And any authority is a bad authority, and not just politically, but even we as Christians, we often just don't like the demands that God puts on our lives. We don't like the demands that run contrary to our understanding of the autonomy that we think that we are owed. So we try to burst our bonds apart. We try to cast the cords away. And so what is David's, what is God's response to this kind of raging and rebellion against him? Well, we've already seen that the raging and plotting in verse 1 is in vain. But now, secondly, the king is reigning. Amidst it all, the king reigns. Now, whether or not David is up in a tall tower and he sees the nations out there building and conspiring in darkness against Israel and against the kingdom, or he sees them out there not necessarily plotting and conspiring against 
them, but he sees them plotting and conspiring and warring against each other. Perhaps he just looks down out of his window and looks down at the street and sees his fellow countrymen just out there taking advantage of one another. This is all part of the same kind of raging. And he looks out on the raging world and he knows verse 4 to be true. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now this is a weird verse. It isn't that God thinks that war, that exploitation, that rebellion is funny. More like, he's just unworried. He is unworried for the ultimate peace of his worldwide kingdom. I recently showed uh, a YouTube video to my kids in which uh, three professional Japanese soccer players uh, play soccer against 100 children. Has, Has anyone ever seen this? Uh, and these are not like small children. They're like probably like 12 to 14-year-olds, probably club soccer players in Japan. And it's three versus 100. Uh, and it's funny. Like you can kind of like chuckle along with these uh, professional soccer players at, and chuckle along at how hard the kids are really trying. Like they're not, they're not just going at it with half motivation. They really want to score. And it's funny. It's just long pass after long pass, and the kids virtually never touch the ball. And eventually, after three or four minutes, uh, these professionals, they get the ball down near the goal, and they score over like a wall of 30 goalies. And it's funny. (laughs) It would be less funny, though, if the kids really, really came to win, and then they start getting really angry when they aren't if the kid's opposing coach starts ordering them to foul their opponents and like really, really foul these opponents. And then worse than that, the kids start fouling each other, not just with hard tackles for obviously no reason because their teammates don't have the ball, but then they just start punching each other. They flat out are just fighting one another. The professionals could respond in a number of different ways. But I think my first response, if I just started seeing these like 12-year-olds trying to like take out my ankles, is I could just go right around them or something, is like, oh, oh, oh you, you kids are serious. <laughs> like, you are really serious. Turn into kind of a chuckling like, wait, what? Like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, you're 12. It just took us like three or four minutes to score on you, but... We realize, you realize, don't you, that we could have scored in like 20 seconds if we really wanted to. We were kind of messing with you for three or four minutes. And this is, I think, a decent image here of Psalm 2. It could end immediately. All of this raging will end, in fact. Verse 5, he will speak to them in wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury. Now, maybe I set the stage for this with the wrong mental picture, I think it would seem like if we just pulled up on YouTube, uh, we saw three professional soccer players respond against children after three or four minutes with wrath and them terrifying them in anger. But what if like the soccer game went on for a hundred years or a thousand years and these children had children who also had children who grew to despise these professional soccer players. They begin to despise each other even more and even more. And then 
even more than that, what if it weren't soccer players who intentionally went into this game, intentionally putting themselves in a place of opposition against these children? But instead, what if it was a creator God who built the world for them, not in opposition against them, but for them, that they might enjoy a flourishing life in love for one another and in love for him? What if these players rejected the goodness and the holiness of their creator? And what if these children just began killing each other out of hatred and anger for each other and then just living out most other moments of their day in selfishness and even mental exploitation of one another? The wrath of God comes to stop the madness, comes to stop the raging, to end injustice and to vindicate the victims of our injustice. God responds in wrath against creation because of his great love for creation. He will not allow us to destroy each other and to keep the coup attempts one after another to continue forever. The coup attempt after coup attempt after coup attempt has earned justice. So as for me, God says in verse 5, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now Mount Zion, in centuries past, before David, was a really big hill. It was a really big hill where the ancient Jebusites had built a walled fortress city. And as David approaches this city of the Jebusites on Mount Zion, in 2 Samuel 5, the Jebusites over the wall, I kind of imagine like the French soldiers in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they, they taunt, they scoff and mock David, saying that the blind and the lame of the city would fight off David. That's all they need. Like, they are scoffing at God's king. But God, there's like three of you who <laughs> had any idea what I was just doing. Uh, God gives this Mount Zion, this, this hill, this city on the hill to David. It's often referred to as the city of David, or as it's later called, Jerusalem. And it, and it is on this hill that God has set his king to expand the flourishing life of the kingdom. The, it's like an expanding Garden of Eden coming right out of Mount Zion, the holy hill of God to extend the peace of God. So David says in verse 7 that he will tell and remind the world of the very heart of the special covenant that God had made with David in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, God places David on the throne and he says that David and his royal descendants will forever have the throne and will forever reign over God's kingdom. David and his royal descendants will be like a son to God, God tells David. And God will be to him and to them as a father. There's some evidence that suggests that this stanza in Psalm 2 would be spoken over David's sons in their own coronation ceremonies as they are pronounced the new king of Israel. By giving, or here though, in Psalm 2, we understand along with 2 Samuel that as Christians, we understand this Davidic covenant, this covenant with David, to find its fulfillment, to find its end in Jesus Christ. 
the gospel writers will go to great lengths to show Jesus to be the son of David, a descendant of David, an heir to the throne, a royal descendant with a claim to the throne. The very word, Christ, it is not Mary and Joseph's last name. It is a title. But what does the word Christ mean? Well, it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew word, the Hebrew word Messiah, Jesus Messiah. All right, that's all very good and great, but what does Messiah mean? Well, Messiah simply means anointed one. Jesus Messiah is Jesus the anointed one. He is the Christ, the title, the heir to the throne, the son of David. By giving Jesus the title of the Christ, we are making an unbelievable theological claim. You know this? Every time you say Jesus Christ, you are shouting theology to the world. That Jesus is the anointed one of God. This first century carpenter who is executed in the backwoods of the Roman Empire, in which the emperor of Rome probably had no clue in his entire lifetime that this happened. We're saying that that guy executed and then raised to new life is the anointed one of God, the set-apart son of David and ruler of God's kingdom, the true son of God, which is why it's so important that at his baptism, his baptism, which is a coronation ceremony of sort, we hear God declare, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is David's son in which God said, he will be a son to me and I will be to him a father. Obey him. Submit to his reign and rule. He is the Christ. Now, can I just point out here, too, that right here at Jesus' baptism, at this announcement from heaven, Jesus didn't become the Son of God. This word begotten in Psalm 2 can be pretty confusing. We see it here and elsewhere in the Bible. We don't use that word to beget or begotten very often in English. We don't have very many categories for that, so sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it sounds like, wait, did God, like, have Jesus as a son? Like, what, is, what in the world is that? But as we'll see in Colossians in a few weeks, Jesus, the, the second person of the triune God, is working, is ruling, is reigning even before his incarnation, even, even before he takes on human flesh. And in fact, it is the word of Jesus' power that creates the universe and holds the universe even today. He is eternally preexistent. He is eternally the Son. We worship, we Christians, we worship one God in three persons, distinct persons, not blending their persons, but at the same time, not dividing their essence. We are in the deep end of Trinitarian theology here, everybody. But we mean, when we say that, that we do not worship three gods. Christians are not tritheists. It's not like we are Greeks who just like picked out three different gods and then said, yeah, that these are the three that we are going to choose to worship. We are monotheists. One God in three persons. And I know our brains are going to explode when we think about what that means, but that is good. It is good. It's true that part of the nature of the second person of the Trinity is to be the Son. We could say that Jesus has eternally been sunning. He's always been sunning. He's always been the Son. While Jesus is just as much eternal as the Father, the Father did not create the Son. The theological category for this is what we call eternal generation. He has eternally been emanating 
been proceeding from the Father. So we can say that the Father is the source of the Son, and yet say that the Son is sharing in eternal glory and majesty, co-equal in majesty, but never saying that God the Father is the beginning of the Son because the Son had no beginning. So I don't want to take this little aside just for mundane words of like meaningless theology or something. You can pass some uh, upper-level seminary test or something someday. But if we have a shallow or surface level of the triune God, then our worship and delight in the triune God will also remain shallow and surface level. It is important for us to know and understand Jesus as the begotten Son of God who reigns and rules as one God so that we might be able to swim deeply in the goodness of our triune God of whom Jesus reigns and rules over the world and over the cosmos. And part of his role is to be the anointed king. It is to bring about the wrath of God against this raging world. Now, this sounds totally foreign to us, to our American image and understanding of Jesus, but the description of Jesus' return as king in the book of Revelation is far from meek and mild. The description of Jesus' return in Revelation is the Psalm 2, Warrior King. Last week we talked about poetry and the imaginative world that the Psalms can evoke, but verse 9 is certainly something, isn't it? Verse 9, you shall break them, the nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The nations belong to King Jesus. They are his heritage, and yet those who stand in opposition, he will break them like a clay pot. My family has gotten super into this new reality show, Lego Masters. Anybody seen it? Uh, Will Arnett is uh, hosting a reality show competition of incredible Lego builders, and a couple of weeks ago, the teams had to build something that would look awesome when they exploded in slow motion. So Will Arnett would like drop an alien like from a second floor, and then it would blow up in a million Legos, all caught in slow motion. Or he would put one of the cityscapes or something and put a little charge inside it and explode it. And then the last category of them, he would get, Will Arnett would get a black baseball wooden bat and this frog or unicorn thing, he would slow motion just explode in slow motion Lego glory. It's pretty great. This is the image of Psalm 2, 9. Not in a, oh, that is awesome, Legos going everywhere kind of way, but in an, oh, the power and the might of King Jesus. In Revelation, Jesus is given a rod of iron, the same rod here, to rule the world in justice and in peace, but he uses the rod by the word of his power. His word is that which gives life and that which destroys. His word of judgment comes to a raging world that he might bring final peace. King Jesus comes to destroy. And that's weird to us. That is, a, that is completely foreign to many of our American imaginations of him. It is a slow motion, like, whoa. He is serious, and Jesus is smashing the unjust, 
raging world, and it is just as easy for him as smashing through a clay pot or a Lego unicorn. Like butter. The word of his power. So, is King Jesus, the son of David, just an angry warrior king, just bent on slow-motion destruction of the universe? The last stanza here is initially and certainly about that wrath. But the last stanza is also deeper than we might think. Finally, the people choose. The people here are choosing. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, in light of all of this, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those, or all, who take refuge in him. So the reality of the justice, the anger, the wrath of God, it cannot be ignored here. God will not allow humanity to rage and to destroy each other forever, to attempt to overthrow him forever. He will not allow us to exploit and kill each other forever with our hands. He will not allow us to exploit and kill each other forever with our hearts. But this is not some like primitive and tribal Old Testament God that we are so thankful that this Psalm 2 understanding of God thankfully evolved into a more peaceful God by Jesus's like Greekified understanding of the God of Israel. Now the modern and Greekified Jewish apostles would still write about the same kind of wrath of God being poured out against all unrighteousness, Romans 1. About the same word that creates the heavens and the earth, the heavens and the earth that now exist that are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly, 2 Peter 3. About how the author of the letter to the Hebrews writes about worshiping God with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Not just a inviting like preschool teacher or a doting grandfather, a consuming fire. Not to mention Jesus's own words over and over and over throughout his earthly ministry of judgment, of destruction, that his, at his return with power and glory, all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, Revelation, or Matthew 24, and how he will divide, the, divide those who belong to him for eternal blessing and those who do not belong to him for eternal destruction. Matthew 25. This is the, these are the words of Jesus. The judgment of God is real, it is certain, and it is coming against our rebellion. Unless we say, well, I'm not really into that kind of rebellion. I'm not trying to overthrow God's kingdom with, like, military rage. Shoot, I don't even, like, rage all the time like my coworkers do against our boss. I don't even rage like my great aunt does on Facebook. I'm fairly even-keeled and mild-mannered. I'm living pretty good and as best as I can. But your best is still saturated through and through with the self with a raging, rebellious heart. Your best still acts out of self-defense, out of self-preservation, out of self-protection, out of self-advancement. 
Your best, Paul says in Romans 3, still does not understand or seek after the things of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Whether you are a military commander trying to overthrow a king, or you are just a regular old, any day insurance salesman, teacher, uh, coffee barista, and you are overthrowing people in your own heart. You are overthrowing the idea that God gets to demand how your life ought to be lived. We don't want that. No one is righteous. Not one. And so, what is it? Is God just out there like building and building and building in anger until he just can't take it anymore? Until he just loses it on creation? No, this couldn't be any further from the truth. God is slow to anger. It is his patience, 2 Peter 3 says, that delays his judgment, not wishing that any of his people should perish, but that all of them should reach repentance. And so this is what this last stanza is about. This last stanza is less of an ultimatum and is more of an invitation. No matter how raging the world has been, no matter how raging your heart has been, grace comes bursting through. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says. All people on earth must come to a place of decision. We saw last week in Psalm 1, there are two ways to live, and only two, not a third. At the fork in the road stands the cross of Christ. Will you live for his kingdom or for yours? So, verse 10, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. It is his kind patience with us that ought to lead us to repentance, of our turning to serve him, of our kissing the sun, meaning you pledge your allegiance to him as king. Your kingdom is owed to him. You give him your kingdom, not because he coercively demands it and you've got some ultimatum hanging over your head, but because his kingdom is better than yours. He can rule in grace and truth when you just rule out of vengeance and half-truth. But be warned. Be warned. His kind patience ought to be the very thing that draws you to himself. And yet we exploit and abuse this patience, abuse this forbearance of our sin, and just become more and more presumptuous in our sin, assuming that God won't act or that God won't do anything about our sin because, well, we don't see or feel his judgment right now in the moment, so I guess it's never coming. And yet, this kind of warning still comes to us in a package of grace, in a package of patience and mercy and of love. The very last verse of Psalm 2 forms a, a sandwich as the first verse in Psalm 1. These two psalms go right together in Verse 1 of Psalm 1 and verse 12 of Psalm 2 are the two pieces of bread. They tie these two psalms up as a doorway to the rest of the psalms. We began with, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. And now we see here in the end of Psalm 2, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In this Psalm 1 man. You want to have a meaningful life? You want to have the Psalm 1 flourishing life? Well, healthy lives filled with money and stuff and sexual adventure and the best destination vacations imaginable, 
it will just leave you grasping for more and more and more. And the next adventure and the next vacation and the next promotion and the next car or the next house. Republican or Democratic candidates or presidents cannot give it to you, cannot give you a meaningful life. Country first nationalism or society first socialism will not keep their promises. Trust me, there is nothing new under the sun and the history of humanity is far too long for us to just observe. We need not just a deconstructed world with no underlining meaning, but we need a king and a kingdom. We need a kingdom built on humility and holiness, of community and commitment. We need a shepherd king, a map maker, a guide to show us the way, who can lead us into the flourishing life of taking his word seriously, of learning it, knowing it, applying it, living his word to us, to obey him and to turn from ourselves. Many of you ladies have been uh, studying Psalm 23 together on Thursdays and on Saturday mornings over the past many weeks. Psalm 23 is, is like a, as a, as a countermeasure against a meaningless American quest for more. Psalm 23 is the antidote to like the sleeping potion of comfort. So I'm going to close our time in Psalm 2 with just reading Psalm 23. For many of you, this has been coursing through your soul. But Psalm 23 is about the anointed king, the shepherd king, the begotten son of God who is inviting you in grace to decide to follow him. For those of you who have decided to follow him, and making a public profession of faith that you belong to him and your kingdom belongs to his in baptism, to then continue to follow him, to follow him into the blessed, flourishing life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, shepherd king, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we repent of our own raging hearts. We repent of hoping and praying for greater earthly kingdoms and greater earthly kings to come and squash that which we think is opposed to you. We pray that we would live civic lives, that we would do all that we can that our own government and constitution has uh, given to us, that we would act in wisdom, but we, act, we pray that we would also act in grace and in love and in compassion toward those around us. We pray that we would trust in you most of all, our King, to bring your kingdom of peace. Might we follow you, perhaps some of us in this room, for the very first time, coming to the fork in the road in which the cross stands before us and laying down our own kingdom, giving it to you, repenting of our 
lives of self-advancement and instead coming to you for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray for the rest of us that we might continue to follow you, our great shepherd. We pray that you would lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us to love you more. Help us to love one another. Help us to love this world and the nations surrounding us for your kingdom's sake. We pray, King Jesus, that you would come and put an end to this raging, that you would patiently wait until all those who would come to repentance would come, and then, Father, after you drawing them to yourself, we pray that you would bring peace to our own hearts and to the cosmos, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.